I have to say, you, you have to love the fact that we just declared the iPad a false god. When I, when I saw that the first time, I was thinking, preach it. Preach it. We have been um, walking along with Carrie and Emily on their journey, and we've been walking through these particular chapters in Exodus that follow the Israelites and their journey through the wilderness, and we've come near the end of our, of our study, not, not really the end of their time in the wilderness. There's a lot left to go. But the end of our study, we're going to wrap it up next week. And these two weeks, we're talking about one of the pivotal moments in their history that's going to set the trajectory. It's a sad trajectory for the rest of their history, not just in the wilderness, but the rest of their history as a nation. And we've come off the mountain of last week, literally, where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And that was an exceptional message last week. If you missed it, I encourage you to, to, to go back and, and watch online. And we've come into this moment where the Israelites traded their worship of the one true God for worship of a false God. And I have to say, as I've thought about this, this is one of the most tragic chapters in all of the Bible. And uh, Emily and Carrie honestly did a really good job of applying that to our lives. And it's not just something for ancient people to wrestle through. This concept of idolatry and false worship is every bit as important for us today. And so this text is going to take us down a rabbit hole that's incredibly relevant to your own relationship with God and your spiritual health, if I could say it that way. So you know, buckle your seatbelts. It's not a light message, but it's a critically important one. Let me give you some context to get from last week to this week. Last week, Lloyd was in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. Today, we're in Exodus 32, the golden calf. That's a lot of ground in between 12 chapters, but not much time has passed. So Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. Then Exodus 21 to 23, those three chapters, are all the other laws that God gave Israel. Then Exodus 24, they have a big covenant ceremony. And we taught on this um, a year ago when we did our table series. This is the moment where the elders of Israel had a meal with God in God's presence. And it was to celebrate the ceremony, the covenant ceremony that they'd just gone through. It was a lot like our modern wedding ceremony where you've got two parties and they make promises to each other. That's exactly what happened with God and the Israelites. And then they celebrated that commitment, that covenant with this meal. That's Exodus 24. And then Exodus 25 through 31, Moses goes further up Mount Sinai and he's kind of swallowed up by the fire and the cloud. The elders come down and all the people are at the base of the mountain for 40 days while Moses is at the top. And what's happening in those chapters is God is having a conversation with Moses and instructing him about the tabernacle and the priests and the Ark of the Covenant and all the worship-related things in the law. Then we get to the very last verse of chapter 31 and I'm gonna start there to give us context 30, chapter 32. So we'll put it on the screen. I invite you to follow along as well. Exodus 31, 18. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on, the, on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. I wanted you to feel the weight of that. These tablets that Moses is carrying down from the mountain, written literally by the finger of God, tablets of stone. And then you get this incredible contrast with what's happening down below the mountain. Look at chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
He was gone 40 days. They were assuming he was dead. 40 days is a long time to be gone in that kind of environment. They were frightened, as Carrie and Emily mentioned. There was fire, there was cloud. Maybe they thought that God killed him. Maybe they thought that he was killed by wild animals, but they assume he's dead. They want a replacement. Notice they're not asking for a replacement for God. They're asking a replacement for Moses, their visible leader. Notice whom they're giving credit to for bringing them out of land, out of Egypt. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. That's their first error. Now, granted, Moses was the physical person leading the way, but God was doing all the work. So they're attributing to this visible physical person, Moses, uh, all the attributes or the, the miracles of God. And so as soon as that physical visible person disappears, they feel the need to replace him with another physical visible thing. So they come to Aaron. They say, make gods who shall go before us, something they can see, something they can touch, something they can visualize. So Aaron, the next verse, said to them, this is verse two, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, bring them to me. Verse three, so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Absolutely devastating. You see what's going on here? They attributed to Moses deliverance from Egypt. As soon as Moses disappeared, they replaced Moses with something they can see, this golden calf. And then at the end, here you go. This is what brought you out of the land of Egypt. Couple of notes on this. Where did they get the gold from? They plundered the Egyptians. That was God's gift to them when they came out of Egypt. After the 10th plague, the Egyptians were so eager to get rid of these people and their God that they said, here, they took the earrings off their ears. They gave them to the Hebrew people. That was God's provision. He knew they were going to need resources to become a nation. They needed a treasury. And here they are, tragically, boiling down and melting down the resources God provided for them to create another God, a new God, a false God. Why a calf? Have you ever thought about that? Why a gold calf? Why not a gold bird or, you know, a gold tree or, you know, lots of things they could have worshiped. In that culture, the calf represented two things. And by the way, calf is not a spectacular translation. In the Hebrew, it's, it has more the idea of a young bull, uh, in the prime of its life, in the strength and vigor. So a bull represented two things, strength and fertility. Makes a lot of sense when you think about it. You know, this was an agrarian culture. And so they've got this bull that represents strength. Why do they need strength? Well, they need protection. They, they need something powerful that's gonna lead them through the, the wilderness. And fertility, if they're gonna grow into a nation, if they're gonna have you know, their animals multiply in their own selves multiply, they're going to need that as well. So they grab onto this image of fertility and strength, which by the way, Baal, the false god Baal, would represent himself supposedly in the image of a young bull. So there might've been some Baal worship that was mixed into this potentially. Uh, let me just give you a visual. I've got some things up here on this table I'm gonna show you, but the first is a gold calf. Now, this was not a, a great uh, rendition. By the way, it's kind of hard to find a gold calf on Amazon. Um, I was kind of glad that it wasn't easy to buy a gold calf on Amazon. That's kind of reassuring. But this is more like a heifer, okay? But picture a, a more of a, a bull, you know, a strong bull. Um, it would have been much bigger than this, obviously. Uh, it it would have been all the jewelry from this great 
group of people that would have been melted down to form this very heavy, very impressive looking golden statue. Um, But the reason I wanted you to see this is I wanted you just to sort of visually be able to think about how sad and tragic that they felt the need to put make something tangible to represent the strength of God, to represent the provision of God for them. And when they say, these are your gods, O Israel, did you catch that's plural? These are your gods. Why gods instead of God? Most scholars believe what's actually happening here is they're not simply replacing Yahweh, the true God, with false golden calf, what they're probably doing is they're probably blending the two. They're, 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 they're creating a mess of polytheism, which was comfortable to them because it's what they grew up with in Egypt. So the Egyptians had many gods. Now they, they have Yahweh. They, you know, they, they still are going to honor Yahweh. You'll see that in the next verse but they also have the golden calf. So these are your gods. You've got Yahweh, you've got calf, and we're going to attribute God's deliverance to this stew, this mess. Look at the next verse, and you'll see more of this. When Aaron saw this, verse 5, he built an altar before it, it being the calf. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, Lord being Yahweh. And we know that because you see in the English, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's a signal that it's the proper name of God, the one true God. So they're saying, basically, we're going to build an altar to the calf. We're going to have a feast to Yahweh. They're, they're, they're mixing. They're, they're suddenly polytheistic. So they wrote, verse 6, they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a um, very polite translation when it says they rose up to play. I I won't go into detail what that was, but in in that culture, uh, what would happen with their worship was a lot of immorality. And so when it says they rose up to play, they they were doing very immoral things um, as a part of their worship. So you see immediately, as soon as they went polytheistic, they went immoral activity, actions. Those things went hand to hand, hand in hand. Guys, monotheism is what made Israel distinct. Even secular historians would say the introduction of monotheism in human culture was a massive, important moment in history. Look how quickly they're going back to polytheism. And throughout the rest of the nation's history, God is going to keep reminding them, the Lord your God is one. You are to have one God, not try to go polytheistic and mix worship of me with worship of idols. That is not what's true. That is not what's right. And that is not what is healthy for you. Now, this was a massively tragic moment in Israel's history. Um, If you were to look through the rest of the Old Testament, which as you know, the nation of Israel at the end of the Old Testament is basically no nation anymore. They were uh, eventually that, you know, they got to the promised land. They were doing well for a while. Then there was a civil war. They split into two kingdoms, the Northern Kingdom, the Southern Kingdom. The Assyrians came in and wiped out the Northern Kingdom. Southern Kingdom lasted a little bit longer. The Babylonians came in, wiped out the Southern Kingdom. The nation was no more. They're in exile. Now, if you were to ask what happened that God's people ended in exile, ended in, in having their land taken from them. And by the time you get to the New Testament, there's another world power, the Romans that are ruling over them. 
The answer to that question is their idolatry caused that. Where did the idolatry start? Exodus 32, on the honeymoon of their wedding, so to speak, with the one true God. It's a tragic story, guys. I want you to feel that. Now, why is worship so important to God? Can I be courageously real and just say a lot of times when I read the Bible, and I think this is true for a lot of us, and we hear about God being jealous with his worship and and God wanting all of our worship just to go to him, it sounds selfish of God. It can sound petty of God. It can sound to us a little bit like, man, we got a megamaniac up there. I mean, if if I'm being honest, it can sound that way. Guys, there is so much more going on under the surface, and I wanna show you why God cares so much about worship. First of all, God loves his people enough to want us to worship what is true, not what is false. Man-made objects are not gods. We know this today. But back then in the ancient times, they literally believed that these things had power or that they were inhabited by spiritual beings that had power. And by the way, there's some truth in that because scripture talks about there being demonic activity tied to the idol worship. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But we know that these things have no power. But the ancient people would pray to the fertility God so that they could have a child. They would pray to a rain God so that their crops would come in. Why? Because they needed these things to survive. They believed their survival was going to be found in the objects of worship. God knows that these so-called gods are actually no gods. They're actually no things. They're nothing. And he knows it's a foolish delusion to go to something that cannot help you and ask for help. In contrast, the one true God has everything to give. He's the very source of life itself. So why go to the no thing to ask to, for, for, for that thing to, to, to open your womb and in, so your infertility can be solved? Why go to a no thing to ask for it to cause rain? God knows what you need. Go to him. He's the life source. So I want you to see this. Worship matters because um, turning away from worshiping the one true God, because all of worship is really going to something to seek life from it. So turning away from the true life source to something that can't give life at all is not just a religious thing. It's a life thing. It's a self-inflicted disaster. And it was that exactly for the Hebrew people. They turned to other sources that had no life to give them. And they made sacrifices to these things to to ask for life. Foolish, devastating, disastrous. So idol idol worship pulled the Hebrew people away from their life-giving covenant with God. The result was an inevitable three-step destruction. They became like the other nations. So then they were overpowered by the other nations and were finally scattered among the other nations. The whole point was for God to make a people holy, which means set apart, distinct. The moment they turned polytheistic, they were giving up that distinction. And eventually it resulted in them being given up into these other nations. Now, let's talk about modern day idolatry. 
Most people assume idols are just a thing of the past. And I understand that because um, I don't see a lot of little golden or silver stone statues. I, I've been in a lot of your houses and I haven't yet seen in, in one of those on someone's mantle. Uh, although, um, Eric and I were in an, an Asian restaurant. This is before the pandemic. And, and we saw a little statue and a plate of food that was like being offered to the statue. And I don't know if that was just to create the ambiance or if they really believe, you know, that, that there's something spiritual going on there. But for the most part, most people don't worship man-made things. However, in a broader sense, Idolatry is alive and well as it always has been. The difference is the objects of our worship. So let's talk about modern day idolatry and we have to start by talking about worship. What is worship? You know, in essence, worship is ascribing value and worth to something. You worship something that you believe has value for you. So, you know, uh, um, I'll start with number of things we worship, music and, and beauty and sports and technologies, celebrities, political power, success. We like to be attached with things that we think are valuable, things that have worth. That's why, you know, everybody's an Alabama fan in the last decade, right? Okay, looking at you, my friend, right over here. Now, enjoying these things, um, sports and music and food and beauty and technology, enjoying these things in their proper context is not worship ascribing ultimate value to them is. The difference is subtle because it's a difference of your heart motivation. The question is, what do you believe that thing can provide for you? So let me give you an example, and I'm gonna pick on the guys in the room because, and this is, just, this is true of men and women to certain degrees, but I'm gonna pick on guys for a minute. Guys, I, I know this is true for me and true for a lot of you that I talk to. We can tend to go to our work, go to our career, go to our success in those spheres to, to find significance, to find value. So the difference between someone that's successful at work and enjoying that as a gift from God to someone who's making an idol out of his work is that the person that's making an idol out of his work believes that ultimate value and significance for him is found in success in his career. And so he will make sacrifices for it. If you believe something holds ultimate value for you, whether it's a job, a career, a hobby, uh, a family, a grandchildren, can, we, can, we, can I go there? Whatever you think has ultimate life for you, ultimate value for you, you cannot help but worship it. Because at the deepest level of every human heart is a longing for life. Fullness of life is how God designed you to seek after it. The quest for fullness of life explains every decision you've ever made. The big question is, where do you really believe fullness of life is found? So God made us to be life seekers. He made us knowing that we would seek out and latch on to whatever we believe holds life for us. In other words, he made us to worship. He made us to find value in things and say, oh, there's a little bit of life in being attached to that thing. There's a little bit of life in being attached to that thing. I feel good and affirmed that when, when, I'm, when I get success there, I'm going to grab onto that thing. You see, this is how we work. But he did not make us worshipers without also giving us the one fully satisfying object for our worship, which is himself. 
would that not have been cruel of God to make us worshipers, longers for life, attachers to things without also providing us an ultimate source for significance, for value, for love, for contentment? We see glimpses throughout the Bible of men and women that found the life source. And one of them is David, a very flawed human being. And yet God says, he's a man after my own heart. David was a great worshiper. He wrote many of our Psalms. And and I want to, to quote a Psalm that I think explains what made David such a great worshiper. Psalm 1611, we'll put it on the screen. This is what David says. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you hear here a man who is searching for fullness and found it? Do you hear in his his words similar things that you might hear, oh, I don't know, from a a Romeo trying to woo his Juliet, you know? Uh, The path of life is with you and, and fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Do you hear in these words a a grandma trying to find life from her grandchildren? You know, fullness of life is in you. Do you hear an entrepreneur trying to to put his career? David was putting his eggs in the right basket, you see. David was a, a seeker of life just like all of us are, and he found it. And that's what made him such a profound worshiper because he found in God the ultimate object for his worship, the ultimate life source that God had designed him for. You can take that off the screen. Thank you. So here's our problem, guys. This is where I'm trying to get really practical. Uh, Just like the Israelites in Exodus 32, our tendency is to turn away from the one true God, our true life source, and worship things we can see and touch and taste. (laughs) That's the essence of idolatry. And so just like the nation of Israel Our idolatry grieves the heart of God because it's robbing us of life. There is no true life in these nothings. They're they're just flimsy. They they break. They crack. They are just nothing but... I'm breaking these little legs off. I got to be careful because I did this at Brentwood last week and I cut my hand. But it made an awesome sermon illustration because I injured myself destroying an idol. Okay, there it is. It's a no thing, okay? I'm, I gotta stop. Jody's <laughs> gonna get up, um, uh, upset with me if I keep trying to go. I literally, I've got the scar to prove it from last week. Now, I've demonstrated this thing has no power, right? It's a silly little sermon illustration. The objects of your affection, if they're anything other than God, if you seek after them for ultimate sense of life, they will break. They will reveal themselves to be just as fragile. A career cannot hold the weight of your life. A marriage cannot. A child cannot. A dream cannot. So let me give you a little definition here of idolatry that I think is really important. And it's a definition I think works for ancient and modern idolatry, which in essence is the same thing. Here it is. Anything apart from your creator, you look to for fullness of life. Because whatever you believe holds fullness of life for you, that's what you'll worship. So this definition actually has everything to do with worship because you'll naturally worship whatever you believe has fullness of life. And we'll leave this on the screen for another couple of minutes. To borrow a phrase from John Calvin, our hearts are idol-making factories. 
seeking fullness of life from this, seeking fullness of life from that. Here's the thing about this, guys. Most of these are good things that we seek life from. Most of them are not evil by themselves. Careers, jobs, marriages, kids, grandkids can be very good things. Let me, let me give you another illustration. I've got some more things under this uh, black cloth here, uh, some trophies. Now, I'm, I'm using this as a figurative illustration, but some of you might identify with this um, very literally. You, you grow up trying to find value in, in anything you can be, because we, we deep down are not sure we're enough. <laughs> That's part of our fallen nature. And so we, we find we're good at something. I'm good at sports. We get a trophy, literally or figuratively, a pat on the back, a praise, and all of a sudden it's easy to just build our life. Oh, that's my identity. I'm good at sports, you see. Or, you know, we win a competition. Let's say it's for a spelling bee, or you realize, oh, I can make good grades, and when I make good grades, mom and dad are proud of me. Or, you know, you, you grow up and you realize, oh, first, I don't know, I'm, I'm a first place dad, or I'm a first place um, salesman. Uh, maybe you win some other kind of award. I like this one because it could be anything. I mean, this could be a music award, which is good in our culture. This could be fame and, and, and acclaim. Maybe this is just a recognition of your success and whatever it is. And we never stop collecting trophies. Our whole lives, we're, we're collecting things. And what's going on inside of us is to say, look, I have value because I can do these things, or I've received these awards, or I have these special abilities. Don't you see I matter? Can't you see? Now, most of these things that I named, really, I, I think all of them that I named are good things in their proper context. Many of them are gifts that God has given you. You're good at sports. You have family that loves you. You have the ability to make money. You, you're doing these kinds of things. But he never intended you to wrap your life around that thing. You might think of an idol as a good thing that you've made into your ultimate thing, that you've attached your identity to, that you've attached your ultimate um, uh, life source to, whatever that ultimate thing is for you, whatever you're looking to for fullness of life, that's what you're really worshiping. Um, one of my favorite seminary professors at Dallas Seminary was uh, Dr. Barry Jones. And I want to read to you a quote that's help, helped me as I've understood idolatry. He says, idolatry is the elevation of something, someone, some pursuit, some practice to a higher place of loyalty and devotion in our heart than God. In our moments of sin, we say to God, I want this more than I want you. I need this more than I need you. I love this more than I love you. We craft idols. We attempt to satiate our thirst out of our own resources, but we're all still thirsty. You see, behind every idol, there is a lie. Here's the lie. That something other than God could ever satisfy you. The lie is, another way to say it, the lie is that moving further from God could ever move you closer to life. So remember how I mentioned that, you know, these idols were really no things. Um, they actually did have some dark spiritual attachment. The Bible says that part of the idolatry worship was connected to 
demons and fallen angels and, and different demonic gods um, were a part of the, the various idol worship of the culture around them, which God called Israel to be distinct from. In other words, there was something very spiritually dark that was grabbing onto the hearts of the Hebrew people when they turned to this golden calf. Why do we think it's different for us today? The idols of our hearts enslave us. There's something dark underneath them. They trap us. They bind us. They, they ultimately want to consume us because they demand to be put first place in our lives. Think of it this way. An idol will capture your heart by first dominating your thoughts, then controlling your emotions, creating in you insatiable desires, and then leading you to choices on the path of death, not the path of life. So whatever things in your life you turn into idols, those are the things that you will end up serving. You will end up making sacrifices for them. Your career, your marriage, your status, your reputation, your appearance, your kids, someone's going to pay the price. So here's where I want to lead us and, and, and just wrap up is I want to help us. What do you do when, when God starts exposing your false worship and the deep down motivations of your heart? It's just like, you know, I claim to be a Christian, but I really think I'm trying to find my worth in people's acceptance of me or whatever it is. You know, you fill in your own blank. What do you do with that? You remember, as we like to say around here, that exposure is an act of grace because it enables you to take your false worship and confess it before the Lord. And whenever we confess our sins, God runs toward us, not away from us. And so I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. We're going to do it together as a body. I'm going to lead us through a time of confession that will lead us into the table, our true source of life. So go ahead and take the elements that you have. You, you should have gotten them when you walked in. And, and if you didn't grab one, go grab one now because I want everybody who's a believer of Jesus Christ to have the bread and the juice this morning. And you can go ahead and prepare it now. It's a little tricky. Peel off the, the upper clear cellophane layer to get to this little bread wafer. And then uh, you can just do that now and have that ready. And then you can start to peel the lower purple layer. Don't be like me and uh, spill it on your Bible. True. I want to lead us in this confession, and it won't just be a confession. It's a confession that will lead us somewhere, a confession that will bring us to the true life source. It's an opportunity for us to displace the idols of our hearts with life in Jesus. I'm going to read the part of the leader. You'll read the part of the congregation and just keep the bread and the cup in your hand as we make this confession to our Lord. And if this expresses the truth of your heart, I want to encourage you to say these words with me. If not, you don't need to pretend. Just stay silent. You use this time for inner reflection. But this is a chance for us to come clean before our God and run to his arms, run to his grace, find life in our worship. Father, we stand before you this morning as a people whose hearts are prone to worship things instead of worshiping you. 
In our hunger and thirst for fullness of life, we have turned away from you to seek life in what we can see, touch, and feel. Say this with me. Forgive us, Father, for forsaking you, our one true source of life. The idols of our hearts have betrayed us. They have left our hunger unfilled and our thirst unsatisfied. They have fueled our desperation and taken us down empty and restless paths. The seeds of idolatry we have sown have yielded a harvest of self-destruction, shattered dreams, and relational brokenness. Forgive us, Lord. Our deepest need is the healing of our hearts. Our truest desire is to be restored into communion with you. Although we turn from you, you did not turn from us. You met us on our path of destruction to redeem us onto the path of life. We hold now in our hands tangible reminders of the lengths you went to seek us out and bring us back. The body and blood of your son are our salvation and our satisfaction. Say this with me. Jesus, we bring to you our hunger and our thirst. We look to you alone to satisfy our souls. Help us cast aside all other objects of worship so we can taste and see that you are good. When there are good things in our lives, help us enjoy them in ways that overflow into praise of you, the giver of such gifts. When we lack things we desire, help us present our longings to you with open hands and trusting hearts. We anchor our faith to the truth that you are enough for us. We believe. Help our unbelief. In our deepest hunger, the body of Christ was broken to become our bread of life. Let us eat and be filled. And in our deepest thirst, the blood of Christ was shed to become a living stream of eternal life. Let us drink and be satisfied.